So, what is Zen? That's the subject for tonight. What is Zen? Uh, and I recognize that that's a question that can't be answered. Uh, so I'll do my best to try and use words to answer that. Uh, we'll see how I do. I'm not the first one to struggle with this. There's a, a line from the sutras that said, uh, the Buddha playfully let words escape his golden mouth and the world ever after was entangled in briars. <laughs> so I'll do my best not to make more briars, but I will. I'll make briars. So what is this Zen thing we talk about? Well, Zen is Buddhism, but it's a particular kind of Buddhism. It's a stripped-down, bare, direct experience of the present moment. It's not unlike uh, Protestantism and Catholicism. You know, the, the, the energy behind the Protestant Reformation was to strip away what wasn't necessary anymore. And Zen is, is in that spirit as well. And it's lived rather than understood. You can't think your way to understanding Zen. You live your way to understanding Zen. I don't think of Zen as a religion. I think of Zen as a path to walk. In some, in some parts of the world, it, it, it is a religion. Um, in the American way of doing it thus far, and we haven't really found our American way yet, but thus far, I wouldn't really classify it as a religion. And Thai didn't teach us to become Buddhists. And when people would come to the monasteries for the big retreats, he would always say, don't become a Buddhist just use Zen to be a better Christian or a better Jew or a better Muslim. You don't have to take on a new religion. So Zen doesn't rely on scriptures or doctrines. And yet we have a book of sutras over there and I'm about to talk about four doctrines of Zen. <laughs> <laughs> so this really points that at, at Zen is full of paradox, and intentionally so, because if we grab onto any one thing and say, that's it, that's not it. So we have to, be, we have to learn to live in the paradox to understand Zen. Uh, but it does use its rituals and scriptures and doctrines in a little bit different way. There is no Zen Bible. Our scriptures and our practices are all about pointing directly back to the experience of Zen in the present moment. So our sutra books play that role for us as uh, against being a book of truth that we memorize. So they're a path rather than a book of truths. So um, these four doctrines that I'm going to talk about tonight were given to us by the legendary founder of Zen. Bodhidharma. Now I say legendary because um, we don't know if he really existed. <clears throat> but he left four things that we can chew on 
to help us get closer to Zen. So those, those four doctrines are that Zen is a direct transmission, that it doesn't rely on scriptures, that it points directly to the human mind, and that it's about seeing into one's nature and attaining Buddhahood. So I'm going to go into each one of those. You don't have to, don't have to write them down or memorize them. But first, let's talk about who Bodhidharma was, because I think that's really probably as important an illustration of, of Zen. So the story goes that uh, Buddhism began in India about 2,600 years ago. And it had made its way out to other parts of the world after the, the Buddha died. And it made its way to China probably around 100 AD, is, is the thought. That at least it was familiar in China about that time. And Bodhidharma showed up in China about 520 AD. And he was uh, an iconoclast. Uh, the, the pictures of him that they've drawn or the statues that they've made, they show what the Chinese called a barbarian. He was somebody who wasn't Chinese. And when I look at the, at the sculptures and things, you know, he's got a bushy beard mm -hmm. and he's got wild eyes. And he doesn't look Indian to me either. He kind of looks Irish. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, who knows? This is, this is you know, people making sculptures. Who, who knows what, what he really was like? Um, but there's a, there's a story that comes down from Bodhidharma that when he, when he got to China, uh, he was very different from the Buddhism they'd seen before. And so he created quite a stir. And he got, created such a stir that the emperor invited him to come and, and have an audience with the emperor. So this is a, this is a big deal, right, to have an audience with the emperor. So he comes before the emperor and the emperor says to him, what is the meaning of the Buddha's holy truths? And Bodhidharma stood there and said, empty, nothing holy. So this wasn't the answer that the emperor was expecting and he thought it was pretty impertinent to answer the emperor in that way. So he, he was shocked and he says, who addresses me thus? And Bodhidharma says, I don't know. <laughs> and he turned and he walked out. <laughs> and he was never invited back to uh, the court again. <clears throat> so actually, those answers aren't, aren't glib like they seem. They're actually direct Zen answers. When he says, um, what is the meaning of the Buddha's holy truths? And, and Bodhidharma says, empty, nothing holy. He means that there is nothing separate that is holy. There is nothing with an inherent nature that's holy that isn't possessed by every other thing. And when he said, who addresses me thus, I don't know, he's not feigning ignorance. What he's saying is, I practice not knowing. That's who I am. I am not knowing. So he wasn't being glib. He was actually pointing to, to um, something really important about, about Zen. So then the legend says that after, after that point, he sat in a cave for nine years facing the wall. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, there's the parts I think we, I brought up in a talk a few weeks ago about the, the, the things that we can really be sure aren't true. Like, he would go, grew so frustrated with his sleepiness that he cut off his eyelids. Uh, and another, another legend that's there, well, and he's portrayed like this, you know, in the... <laughs> in the uh, sculptures and things with wild eyes. So 
Maybe they thought he had, because his <laughs> eyes didn't look quite the same as everybody else's. Uh, but there's another, another story that said uh, someone came to become his disciple while he was in the cave, and he sent them away, and out into the snow, into the winter snow. And so this, this person remained there all night, and Bodhidharma still wouldn't entertain a conversation with this person. And then finally, for this, this person to show how serious he was about becoming a disciple of, of Bodhidharma, he cut off his hand and presented it to him. And Bodhidharma said, well, okay, and took him on as a student. And he became then the second Zen ancestor. So it's another story about um, how things got started. So that brings us to the very first of those doctrines that Bodhidharma said that Zen is directly transmitted. Now, you don't have to cut off your hand to do it, but that was the beginning of the direct Zen uh, transmission. So when, uh, when Buddhism encountered Chinese Taoism and Confucianism, they blended. And that became Chan, which when that went to Japan was pronounced Zen. So... Zen really is a combination of Buddhism as taught by the Buddha and Taoist and Confucian uh, history in China. So it, they, they, they blended together. And it, and it was really important that they did because the original languages of Buddhism, Sanskrit and Pali, are analytical languages. They are uh, languages that are fit for dissecting and looking deeply and closely at terms. English is an analytic language like that. We can do philosophy in English really well. And Sanskrit and Pali were just really perfect for this. But there's a problem that you start to uh, have that be the way Buddhism is thought about, and it turns into something analytical. So when Bodhidharma brought this to China, it didn't make any sense to the Chinese. But the Chinese language is illusory and poetic. It, it plays with images instead of cutting things into little bits in an analytic way. So it's perfect to make Zen out of. It was the perfect language. So it was really um, a really great thing that those two came together. So Zen has dropped emphasis on the listy stuff of Buddhism. You know, we don't emphasize as much the, you know, the Four Noble Truths, the Noble Eightfold Path, the Five Remembrances, the Seven Factors of Awakening. There's just lists of lists and lists and lists and lists. And then we still, we still reference those, but not to the uh, extent that Theravadan Buddhism, for instance, some of the way it's taught, the original way, uh, is, is still uses that a lot. So this direct transmission became part of this paradoxical and poetic way that the Chinese language allowed. And that direct transmission it goes from teacher to student. And it happens really, I think, in three ways. The, the first way is by example. The teacher lives the Zen awareness, and the student follows that example, either consciously or unconsciously. Uh, and it's not just student, teachers that teach. The sanghas teach, too. The sanghas transmit to each other 
Sangha members transmit to each other. And I can see it's happening so clearly in our Sangha. Uh, it, it's so beautiful to watch it happen. I can hear the sound of Sandra's bell and I can feel the transmission, the direct transmission of that, of that act, of way, the way of inviting that bell. I can see the way that we're sitting differently than we did a couple of years ago here. That's been a direct transmission from person to person throughout the Sangha. And it has, to, it has to be transmitted that way because the words about it just don't, they just don't capture it. So, you know, for instance, how are you going to give someone the visual experience of seeing Mount Baker in the sunset? How are you going to give someone the smell of a summer rainstorm on a wheat field in the Palouse? How are you going to give someone the sound of a raven's wing when they fly? You can't. You can't. And, and that's why um, this direct transmission is so important. So the, the one way is by example. The second way is that we teach each other by skillful means. There is no set way to transmit Zen from one person to another one generation to another. We have to always be aware of the conditions of a person's um, mind, of their body, of their culture, and we have to find ways to meet them right where they are to help them live it authentically. So it can't be done from person to person. So when I meet with, with people in the interview room, everybody that I meet with, it's different. Everybody. It has a different flavor for every person because the, the person's different. Need, the, those people need different things. So we use skillful means and examples. And then the third way is there's a recognition by the Sangha, by the teacher, of one's readiness after, as they've absorbed this transmission, their readiness to really be, to begin transmitting that to others. So that's direct transmission. That's the first of the doctrineless doctrines. <clears throat> the second one I've, I've already mentioned a little bit that Zen doesn't rely on scriptures. Of course, we do rely on scriptures. We have a, a beautiful history of poetry and calligraphy and things that point us back to our own direct experience of Zen. And we have some of those in our sutra books. The Song of the Grass Roof Hermitage, for instance. This beautiful poem by old Shi Tao, a, a hermit in China. Um, so we do have those. But again, they function as vessels for transmitting the experience, not as lists of things that are true and not true. I like to think of our sutras as signposts that have been left by the ancestors. When we recite our mindfulness trainings, our experience over time is that uh, we will meet them differently depending on the, the changes in our practice. What was meaningless 
last week, suddenly, oh. And then in another year, that means even something more. So there's signposts left by our ancestors to help us. And they knew they couldn't give it to us directly, but they could give us little hints along the way. And we like to use that phrase in Zen, the finger pointing at the moon is not the moon. And our sutras are that. They're the finger pointing at the moon. But we have to see the moon ourselves. They can't do it for us. So another way that we don't rely on scriptures, but do, is that we pass on Zen stories. So Zen is just filled with great stories. Uh, and we could, we could just tell Zen stories all the time. And they have all of them have some great teaching. So the, the story that I just uh, wanted to share was that one you may have heard about before. The two monks are, are uh, traveling, and they, it's in the springtime, and the, and the creeks and the rivers are running very high. And they come to a, a, a creek that's rushing, with overflowing its banks. And it's, by the creek is a woman who is um, frightened across because she's afraid she's going to get swept down the creek. So one of the monks immediately goes over to the woman and picks her up and carries her across and puts her down on the other side. And the two monks go their way and the woman goes their way. And uh, the monk who didn't pick up the woman, after some time of walking together, he said, how could you have done that? Our precepts forbid us from touching women. How could you have picked her up? And the the monk who picked up the woman turned to him and says, hmm, I put the woman down a long time ago. <laughs> so we have those, all those stories like that, you know, and they're just they're great. Yeah. So the third doctrineless doctrine is that Zen points directly to the human mind. So the, a central part of the Buddha's teaching is that the human mind creates its own reality. You and I could walk down the street and we would see different things. We would experience the world as a different place because our minds will create different realities. And it's something that it's very difficult for us to escape. But Zen points us towards seeing how the mind operates in the present moment so that we can begin to become free of the blinders and the filters through which we experience life. And we have, Zen points us back always to our own mind as we are observing things with the realization that this is what is creating that reality. So if we don't know what is happening in our own mind, we have no hope of being able to uh, interact with the world in a truthful way, in an honest way. So recently I spoke about that, this process, that we, first we, we, see and name what it is, and then we allow what it is, and then we embrace what it is. So that's that's part of the process that Zen uses to point directly to the human mind. And, and this is what we're doing when we sit on our cushions, on our meditation cushions. Uh, while we're meditating, what we're really doing is paying attention to our own mind. We're paying attention to our own body. And doing that again and again 
frees us. It's a slow process. It's a little bit of a mystical process. It's hard to put your finger on it, but you do know at certain points that it has been changing your mind, making you freer. So we have a particular type of meditation that we do here, and that's different from other types of Zen. So I just want to point out that there are differences. So the, the, for instance, the largest uh, sort of Zen practice in the US is Soto Zen, which is a form of Japanese Zen. And they practice Shikantaza, which is just sitting. It's very um, stripped of everything but just sitting and being aware. Uh, Rinzai Zen, which is another Japanese uh, Zen form of which we trace our route to as well. Uh, Rinzai Zen uses koans. So they're using koans, these, these little riddles, um, uh, stories to help, uh, help break through and see the human mind. Now, our type of Vietnamese Rinzai Zen doesn't use many koans at all. And we don't, like, like uh, Soto Zen, we don't go intensively into meditation on the cushion. What we do is we meditate all the time in everything. We don't stop. So it's just as important uh, while we're sitting uh, on our cushion how we stand up as it is how we sit. It's just as important how we take our steps. It's just as important how we use the bathroom, how we eat our food, how we drive our car, everything. There's nothing left out of our style of Zen practice. So intentionally, we don't go as deep in our meditation practices. We don't put the emphasis on going very deep and then coming back up for air. We just breathe all the time. So that's pointing to the human mind. So the last one of our four doctrineless doctrines is that Zen shows us our true nature and helps us attain Buddhahood. Dogen said, to study the Buddha way is to study the self, and to study the self is to forget the self. So we study the Buddha way, that's studying the self, and that helps us forget the self. And in that forgetting about the self, that is when we are living a Zen experience. What does that mean? I mean, it sounds so abstract. But there's actually some concrete things that happen. So one of the things is we see when we are studying the self and forgetting the self is that the self that we are studying at first believes that we are separate from all other selves. I am a separate self. I am here. You are there. We can know a little bit about each other, but there's a, a wall between us that cannot be broached. Self and other are completely separate. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, we, are, we believe we are separate self-entities. But Zen points to our true nature and says, this is not the case. We are not separate self-entities. We inter-are with each other. We aren't beings, we are inter-beings. And while that sounds abstract, what happens is the more we sit on the cushion, the more we meditate, the more that becomes our lived experience, the more it becomes impossible for us to, for instance, 
harm another person. Because we see, I'm harming myself. To steal from another person. Because I'm stealing from myself. To oppress another person. I'm just oppressing myself. We also begin to see that that we aren't separate from the flow of each moment. So we think of ourselves in, in before we start to point at our mind in this way, at our true nature, we see ourselves as somehow existing from birth and we are this separate self-entity all the way through until we die and then we disappear. <laughs> right? We came from nothing, we go back to nothing. But when we point at our true nature in this way, that starts to become also unreal and untrue. We see that there are parts of us that are universal and timeless, that, that existed before we were born and will exist after we die. There's a koan that says, show me the face you had before your parents were born. This is what this is pointing at. Our true nature is not the nature to be born from nothing and die into nothingness. Our true nature is interconnected with all things. And Zen points us back to that truth. So this fourth doctrine that says Zen shows us our true nature and helps us attain Buddhahood. Well, a Buddha is one who sees that very clearly in every moment. We're part-time Buddhists. We see it somewhat fuzzily and not in every moment. But it, but it helps us attain that Buddhahood by making sure we understand that Zen is a path, not an attainment. So it doesn't matter that we don't see it every moment. We are on the path to seeing it. And if we never arrive at that, that's okay. Because we can, anytime we want, take a step and we can see it right then. And now we can take another step and we can see it right then. And then we can be a part-time Buddha and forget and see it again. We don't have to be full-time Buddhas. One more thing about this direct transmission. You know, when I pick up my cup of water, this is a direct transmission I receive from Thai. There's a, there's a picture that I have that someone took that I really treasure. And it's a picture of Thai and I sitting together at his hut. And I, what I remember about that moment was that we were drinking tea and he had a thermos and he opened the thermos and he poured a cup of tea and he picked up the cup of tea and he held it in his hands and he took a sip. 
what he was transmitting in that moment was his way of being present for that tea. And it allowed me to at first imitate his actions. But then he showed me the way to experience my tea fully, to be present for the entire experience of the oneness of this tea and me. And he couldn't have done that with words. He could only have done it by being himself and sipping the tea in the way he sipped the tea because that was his actual experience to be one with the tea. And after imitating him for some time, I began to experience it myself. That's the direct transmission of Zen. So Zen is nothing special. It's nothing special. All these words may have been confusing, but Zen is nothing special. And when I mean nothing special, I mean a couple of things. I mean that it is just this life. Nothing else added. Nothing special. You don't have to have another life to practice Zen. You practice your not special life in your not special moment. And when you are present for it, your life becomes special and the moment becomes special. And when you're not present for it, it's nothing special. We have another koan that says, this is it. This is it. This very life in this very moment, this is it. And when we are aware of that life in that moment, we are living Zen. We know Zen. It's just the finest of gradations between being present for this moment and being awake and not being present for this moment and not being awake. It is such a fine line. And you know it. You know it for yourself. So this is it. Every moment of our life, this is it. Even and especially the moments we don't want. Especially the moments we don't want because that's when we flee from our life. It's really easy to be present for our life when everything is, is just what we want. But Zen, Zen holds us in the moments that we don't want. And then they become what we want. Because there is beauty in each moment, no matter what our ideas about them are. The moment itself is beautiful. So that's, that's one way of, of, of saying Zen is nothing special. But also, really, another way of saying Zen is nothing special is that there's nothing special about Zen that helps you wake up. There are many paths to waking up. And you don't have to do it this way. This is just one way to do it. Truth is a wordless experience, not some special knowledge. 
And because it's a wordless experience, many paths can take you there. It doesn't have to be Zen. But it does have to be a path, right? Because if we don't follow a path, then our mind that doesn't want to give up its separateness will fool us. And we'll say, oh, I like that. I'm going to do that part over there. I don't like that, so I'm not doing that. Well, sometimes that stuff we don't like is exactly the thing that we need most to transform us. So if we don't pick one path or other and put ourselves into that furnace, it's very hard to wake up. And I think the more we wake up, the more we see that this path is nothing special, that we have a a kind of respect for all the other paths because we see that they are also capable of waking people up. And the more awake we get, the more we recognize that awakening potential in all the paths that are there. So we become less um, dogmatic and... um, What's the right word? certain of our rightness, self-righteous about, about being a Zen practitioner. So it's nothing special, and yet we owe a lifetime of gratitude to those who have brought it to us. Yeah. They've, they've made a lot of sacrifices. They have practiced deeply, and they've done it with love in their hearts to show us how. So we have this this deep well of gratitude to the people who have shown us this thing that can't be spoken about. So I think that's all the brambles I want to create. Um, I hope I haven't entangled you even more. But I trust us all to know this for ourselves. And we all are knowing this for ourselves because we know when we're touching our awakened mind. And, and a little harder to know when we're not, but we do, we do know when we're touching it. We know when we're free. And, and I trust all of you to know for yourself. You don't have to go to somebody else to have them confirm it. You know when you're touching your awakened mind. And then that gives you the courage and the energy and the strength to do it again, and do it again. And so you live Zen. So thank you for listening.